You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Biden and the Democratic-led Senate confirmed a diverse slate of 40 district and appellate judges in 2021, beating out the first-year totals for every president since Ronald Reagan. He diversified the bench, doubling the number of black women at the circuit court level. Of those nominees, 20 were black, 14 were Hispanic or Latino, 13 were Asian American and Pacific Islander, and three were Native American. And there were a number of firsts. The first openly LGBT woman appointed to a federal circuit court. The first black judge on the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. The first Asian American woman on the D.C. Circuit Court. And the first Muslim federal judge. But Biden will face more challenges getting judges confirmed in 2022 especially since there could be a closing window after the midterm elections. Here to discuss those challenges is Bloomberg Law reporter Madison Alder. Tell us broadly what has Biden accomplished as far as judicial vacancies in his first year? Biden had a historic year of judicial nominations in 2021. He confirmed, with the help of the Democratic-led Senate, 40 district and appellate judges, uh, which is the most of any modern president since Ronald Reagan. And a lot of those nominees were very diverse. They brought both professional and demographic diversity to their respective courts, which was a really big priority for the Biden administration as well. So tell us about the different kinds of diversity. So in addition to demographic diversity, you know, Biden has prioritized nominating people who don't have a traditional path to the bench professionally. That includes people who have experience as public defenders. It's probably the biggest group. About 30% of his nominees so far have had some public defense experience, according to the Alliance for Justice, which is a progressive legal um, advocacy group. And that means that Biden's nominees are kind of unique in this way, you know, particular to him in, in this administration. They're not just demographically diverse. So many of them have been women, many of them have been women of color. They also have this added factor of 
having a background that is very different for the federal judiciary. So were the progressive groups happy about this? Were they pleased with his progress? Biden has largely met expectations from progressives uh, in terms of the diversity of his nominees. Uh, At the beginning of the administration, progressives were really hopeful that Biden would bring more diversity to the federal judiciary and do it quickly, considering that he has experience as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. He's done nominations on the other side of of this before. So um, they were really hopeful that he would make good on on these promises and efforts. And then White House Counsel Dana Remus laid out to Democrats early on in the administration that they wanted more demographic diversity, more professional diversity. And I think progressive groups have, have largely um, been pretty pleased with, with the way that Biden handled his first year. So though 20 percent of the nominees were Hispanic or Latino, some Hispanic and Latino groups express frustration with that. The Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund was disappointed with Biden's decision to announce intent to nominate Michelle Child to the D.C. Circuit. This is the second D.C. Circuit vacancy that Biden has had open. The D.C. Circuit is obviously a very important court, um, often seen as the second highest court in the land to the Supreme Court. And Maldives was really hoping to see the first Latino nominated to the D.C. Circuit. This would have been the first in history. And uh, I spoke to Thomas Sines, who's the president and general counsel of Maldives. He says that they forwarded nominations to the White House. They were talking to them. But ultimately, Michelle Childs, who's a black woman, uh, was the intended nominee. They're disappointed with this. They're also disappointed with the nominations to uh, one of the California district courts, which they've believed didn't include as as many Hispanic and Latino nominees as as it could have. So they'd like to see more of this in the 2022. And science told me that there are certainly seats that uh, they're they're going to be watching for, uh, for Hispanic and Latino nominees. And certainly there were a lot of firsts in terms of judicial appointments. The first openly LGBT woman on a federal circuit court the first black judge on the Federal Court of Appeals, the first Muslim federal judge, to name a few. But there are still possibilities for more firsts in 2022. So tell us about Correct. Those. Jill Dash, uh, American Constitution Society, told me that she's going to be looking for Biden to increase diversity, naming more LGBTQ lawyers, um, labor side attorneys, but also she's going to be watching for vacancies on the Third Circuit, which has never had a black woman before, and uh, the District of Idaho, which has never had a female judge in its history. Some are calling for nominees who are disabled or who have a background in disability law. Rakeem Brooks, um, president of the Progressive Judicial Advocacy Group Alliance for Justice, told me that he's looking for uh, more nominees or or some of the first nominees that would have uh, experience in disability law or are themselves disabled. That's going to be another group of, of nominees that, that Biden could pull from for the first time in 2022. Let's talk about the fact that the overwhelming majority of his nominees so far were in states represented by two Democrats in the Senate. Explain the blue slip procedure. The blue slip rule is uh, a practice in the Senate in which home state senators signify their 
support for a nominee in their state. In under the last administration, the Republican-led Senate did away with this rule for for circuit court appointments. They stopped treating it like a veto. Democrats have said that they're doing the same thing this time around now that they're in in the majority, and that means that it, at the district court level. Blue state seats are going to be the easiest ones for Biden to work with. He might have to negotiate more with states that have at least one Republican senator. There has been a nomination to a district court seat in Ohio, which has a long history of bipartisan collaboration between the two senators there, one Democrat and one Republican. Uh, And then there has been a nomination at the circuit court level to a red state, uh, which is Tennessee. That is Andre Mathis for the Sixth Circuit. Is Biden just shying away from confrontations with Republican senators, or are there other reasons why he hasn't been moving forward in states with Republican senators? There's different opinions about this. I don't think it's clear necessarily what the Biden administration is doing at this point, but you know, sources that watch this process closely have told me that the Biden administration could just be dealing with low-hanging fruit, dealing with circuit court vacancies and district court vacancies in blue states in the first year. But there are vacancies in in red states and purple states, both at the district and circuit court level, that Biden will probably have to deal with in 2022, which could create a a bit more difficulty in judicial nominations for, for this year. You mentioned Mathis for the Tennessee seat on the Sixth Circuit. Tell us what happened. There was a problem when he made a nomination in a red state. Right. Andre Mathis, uh, Biden's first nominee to a red state, prompted criticism from the the two Republican senators there because they didn't feel they were consulted on the nomination. Uh, The White House definitely responded to this. They said that that they had consulted with the the Tennessee senators meaningfully. So so there is a bit of a disagreement there. But what the the disagreement between the White House and the senators really highlights is the difficulty that Biden could be approaching with other circuit seats if they're if they're choosing to negotiate, but also with district seats and, and could be an impediment to those, which still, uh, for all intents and purposes, require blue slips from from home state senators, though uh, Senator Durbin, uh, who is the chairman of the of the Judiciary Committee, has said that he would potentially do away with blue slips if Republicans are, are obstructing the process. Um, and that's going to be a call that the Democrats make. And there's an urgency to fill these slots in 2022 before the Senate may change hands. And that's an added pressure in 2022 for the Biden administration. If uh, Democrats lose the Senate during midterms, um, or you know, even just the pressure that, that midterm elections will will put on uh, members of Congress. Um, that, that's just another factor that's playing out in the background for nominations this year. The Biden administration has been moving very quickly, but uh, they'll likely have to maintain the pace this year um, with midterms potentially threatening their slim Senate majority. You talked to Ed Whelan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, and he said. He's delivered on his diversity promise. I think he set a bar so high, I'd be surprised if he's able to maintain it. Well, Biden's diversity with his nominees in this first year has been pretty remarkable. And um, especially you know, taking into account professional diversity and demographic diversity. Um, so I think what um, Ed Whelan is saying here is that, you know, in year two, um, Biden has set quite a high bar for himself. Uh, and 
we'll have other factors to take into account in 2022 as groups uh, on the left are pushing for Biden to even further diversify his nominations. So now there's one area where Biden has not been able to make any appointments, and that is the Supreme Court. People are looking again at Justice Breyer to see if he'll retire before the midterms. Have we heard anything at all? If we've heard anything, uh, it, it hasn't gotten to, to me yet. Uh, J- Justice Breyer is going to be the one that has to make this decision ultimately, but progressives are very hopeful. Uh, he he will decide to retire at the end of this term, and Biden would have a, a Supreme Court appointment before the midterm. He's indicated that he will put a black woman on the Supreme Court. Has he mentioned any names? Biden hasn't mentioned any names publicly, but Biden doubled the number of black women judges at the circuit court level in 2021 um, with his first four circuit court appointments. Um, so he's he's definitely building that that pipeline. And then two of those uh, or I should say one of those nominees who's been confirmed, um, Katanji Brown Jackson, is thought of as uh, a, a candidate potentially uh, if there were a Supreme Court vacancy and then. Biden's nominee for the D.C. Circuit, uh, Michelle Childs, um, who has yet to be formally nominated, she is is also seen as, as a potential candidate for a vacancy. So um, he's, he's definitely building that pipeline. So it looks like it's going to be another interesting year of judicial nominations. Thanks so much, Madison. That's Bloomberg Law Reporter Madison Alder. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. As the Supreme Court faces calls for broader structural changes, Chief Justice John Roberts stressed the importance of judicial independence from congressional mandates in his annual year-end report, released on Friday. Joining me is Professor Harold Krent of Chicago Kent College of Law. In the face of what some would call a legitimacy crisis for the courts, and particularly the Supreme Court is facing some of its lowest approval numbers. Did the chief address that? The chief did not address the importance of an independent judiciary and the importance of the public having faith in the judiciary directly. What he did instead was try to parry pending efforts of Congress to regulate the judiciary. And He did that directly by saying we have the ability to put our own house in order by beefing up efforts to combat ethics violations, by beefing up efforts to combat any kind of workplace harassment. So Congress, hands off, you don't need to regulate us. We can more effectually regulate ourselves. In the long run, what he was trying to do was emphasize the importance of an independent judiciary apart from any kind of congressional regulation. The two issues that he concentrated on, how the judiciary handles financial disclosures and workplace harassment, those are issues that the judiciary has faced for quite some time. Has it shown it's capable of policing itself? Well, there have been efforts by the judiciary to take uh, complaints with respect to judicial misconduct, indeed, Congress set up a statute in 1980 to allow judges and to organize judges to receive complaints of wrongdoing about their fellow judges and follow a process of inquiry and ultimate sanction. But obviously, there are still problems that happen. And most notably, there was a Ninth Circuit judge, Judge Kosinski, who was accused of serious uh, sexual peccadilloes um, and was forced to resign a number of years ago. Obviously, we don't know about other kinds of complaints that are continuing, but there are some. And I think what the chief was saying is we're not perfect and we knew we do need to take more efforts, but we've done a pretty good job so far. Maybe he's right. Maybe he's wrong. But that's the tone of his message. He you know, referred to a Wall Street Journal investigation that found hundreds of instances where judges presided over cases involving companies that they or their relatives held stock in. But the journal said its subsequent reporting found that the actual number of cases was significantly higher with at least 950 recusal violations. Is anyone policing whether or not judges step down when there's a conflict of interest? Well, the judicial the Ministry of Office of the U.S. Courts and the Judicial Conference should be exercising their oversight authority to gauge whether there are such kinds of failures to recuse. I do want to add that a lot of these recusal um, uh, requirements are formalistic. And by that, I mean, if someone owns a share of stock or five shares of stock, even if it's in a mutual fund, um, one should recuse oneself. And obviously, we don't usually think that a judge will be biased because of owning five shares of stock in some kind of mutual fund. But nonetheless, they're important. 
Um, Chief Justice Roberts recognizes that those rules, even if they are formalistic, are important to prevent financial influence from entering the fray and for making sure the public has faith in the judiciary. And so he has pledged to work with the Judicial Conference to uh, improve technology, to help enforce these requirements more stringently. So do I think this is the most serious uh, violation of uh, judicial independence? I, I don't. Um, but I do think that the Wall Street Journal was right to call out the judiciary, um, and the judiciary should redouble its efforts in order to prevent that kind of... The chief was as one of um, three justices who have had to recuse themselves because they found out that they own stock in a company. Is the question whether judges should own stock in individual companies at all? Well, it's difficult in this day and age, given the, the you know, companies operate under different names and they're um, inter- internationally connected in different ways to really figure out how to police against uh, financial interests in a, in a proceeding. Some people have recommended that there's a blind trust, that once you're a president or a, a judge, that you should have somebody else manage your money so that you can't possibly be you know, affected by some kind of financial um, bias. And I, I do think that this, we try to draw the line to prevent very clearly, uh, but really in some ways it's a over-enforcement because I don't think that owning you know, 50 shares of stock, 25 shares of stock in an entire portfolio will really change someone's pers- perspective on a vote. And sometimes people don't even know the stock that they own just because it's owned in some kind of mutual fund. So it is a problem, um, given financial holdings what they are, and I, I do think that better technology and more rigorous enforcement is appropriate, but I don't think that our judiciary is riddled with financial self-interest. Does the judiciary have an ethics code? Does the Supreme Court have an ethics code? Well, there is a um, – I, I don't believe that there's an ethical code specific to the Supreme Court, but there certainly is an ethics code for the judiciary, and the Judicial Conference does can pass um, rules and has passed rules in order to uh, maintain the highest sort of level of professionalism amongst the, the court. One of the things that the report does indicate, though, that there has historically been we might call instability. Uh, we might call sort of uh, those kind of petty uh, problems that happen in, in the workplace. And there has not been a great deal of historical attention paid to what it means to be civil in terms of a judge to a bailiff or a judge to a court clerk um, or to litigants themselves. And I'm glad that at least in some ways, uh, Chief Justice Roberts is giving some attention to that by uh, creating task forces to, to better educate and to take complaints from both workers and litigants uh, when judges do you know, burst out into profanity or uh, criticize what someone is wearing. Because those kinds of incidents have not been uh, policed historically. And, and just by uh, hearsay and anecdote, um, I think they take place far more often than does any kind of financial impropriety. When I hear Congress is going to establish a task force or any organization is going to establish a task force, 
it just seems like that's kicking the can down the road. I mean, what do task forces really accomplish? Yeah, sometimes it's information gathering, uh, and one needs information. But at the same time, there are some structures now in place. There are uh, complaints that can be filed against judges, and each circuit judicial council has to have a mechanism for allowing those complaints and then for investigating those complaints. So that is actual progress. It is in place. Um, Whether there is appropriate sensitivity training, (laughs) to say put it that way, um, and whether there's a task force to figure out what you go into that sensitivity training, I don't know. I think there's probably more reason to be skeptical of that. But again, there has been at least some progress made that people who are outraged at the behavior of judges, whether again employed to employees or litigants, can can request some kind of answer and that the councils will investigate those kinds of charges. So we're not all the way there, but there has been progress. So now there was legislation that passed the House about judicial financial reporting. It passed the House by a margin of 422 to 4 in December. We'll see what happens in the Senate. And there's also separate legislation that would give judiciary workers the same anti-discrimination rights and whistleblower protections as other federal employees. That's pending. But does it seem as if something is going to happen? There's going to be some legislation passed in the near future regarding the judiciary. Yeah, and the judiciary historically has opposed any kind of uh, extension of whistleblower statutes or any kind of discrimination statutes to the judiciary. Um, They want to keep it in-house, just as Congress does. Congress has been loath to require its own members to fulfill the same kinds of requirements as in a private workforce. And uh, there I think that the judiciary may be on weak ground. I think it probably is appropriate to apply those kinds of anti-discrimination and whistleblower statutes equally to the private sector as as to the judiciary and to members of Congress. Were there any surprises? Because the Chief Justice has been talking about the importance of the independence of the judiciary as long as I can remember. He has been talking about it. And what is in some ways disappointing is he ignores the big question about the legitimacy of the Supreme Court in the public eyes. We know that the public has less faith in an independent judiciary than it has in some time, uh, despite the chief's efforts. We know that there's greater politicization on the court. We know that even the way the justices react to issues such as abortion or the the right to own guns or voting rights um, are are very partisan. Um, And they've written in a partisan way. And so this report ignores the fact that members of his own court seem to fan the flames of partisanship and therefore engender what, I mean, sort of endanger what the chief himself believes is a large problem uh, confronting the judiciary, which is um, the public's faith in an independent judiciary. This term, the court has taken up a lot of controversial social issues, abortion, gun rights, some religion cases. It now is taking on the vaccine mandate. Are these cases that the court couldn't avoid, or are they deliberately putting themselves into 
the maelstrom of what's happening in society with over these issues? I think for the most part, the court is acting appropriately. There are splits in many of the circuits on some of these issues, such as the both the abortion case as cases as well as the Second Amendment cases. Um, the Vaccination case is very important for the court to um, address. Uh, so I, I think the court, for the most part, is not reaching out <laughs> to to get mired in controversy, but is acting consistently with what it's done in, in the past in terms of when there is a split amongst the lower courts, resolve that split. And if something is very important to the future of the country, uh, whether it's the uh, question about the OSHA and requiring vaccinations, or perhaps even it's about the subpoenas and the January 6th movement, they should address those issues. And of course, we're waiting to see whether they'll weigh in on the last one or not. And the justices are going to be addressing the vaccine mandate question this Friday in the first oral arguments of the term. Thanks, Hal. That's Harold Krant, professor at the Chicago Kent College of Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by listening to our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.